You're listening to the S&P Sports Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to episode five of the SP Sports Podcast. Uh, me and Dan are taking a deep dive into the WNBA CBA and Patrick Kane and talking about him after he hit 1,000 points uh, this past week. So um, we're going to start with uh, actually men's basketball in the college spectrum. Um, Dan's going to take this one away. Uh, thanks, Chris. Yep. Uh, we're going to dive into the new uh, WNBA collective bargaining agreement uh, shortly. But before that, uh, Chris and I kind of observed some uh, parity in uh, NCAA men's basketball so far this season. And that has been really evident across the country. You look at across conferences, uh, there's been a lot of there have been many upsets. A lot of ranked teams have been going down. And really, the, the, the top headline is North Carolina, a blue bud, uh, traditional power. Uh, the Tar Heels are really struggling this season. Uh, this is the worst season they've had since 2001 and 2002 uh, because they are currently 1-5 in the ACC and find themselves at the bottom of their conference standings. So the Tar Heels really having a tough go of it. Uh, head coach Roy Williams has said that this is his least talented team he's ever coached. He's gone out publicly and said that, uh, which is really uh, remarkable to hear from any coach, but especially a legend like Roy Williams to be that brutally honest about his team's uh, stature here this season. Uh, and, and UNC's rival, Duke, hasn't hasn't fared all that much better. Their record is significantly better in the ACC. But you look at their resume, they've suffered defeats against number 11, Louisville, and unranked Clemson. Uh, and, uh, just this past week. Yeah. That was just this past week. And so earlier this season, you look at how the uh, Duke lost to Stephen F. Austin, which was a major upset, uh, easily one of the biggest upsets of the season in a season that has been full of them. Uh, but it's been outside the ACC. It's been... Uh, you look at the SEC, Auburn has lost to unranked Alabama and Florida. Uh, it, when you look at other conferences, Butler, the Butler Bulldogs, they fell at the hands of number 18, Seton Hall, and unranked DePaul as recently as this past week. So uh, you look at the chaos that's been going on, and it's reflected in the AP Top 25 and the Associated Press rankings. You see in this week, the Baylor uh, Bears, they're the latest number one team in the nation, uh, according to the Associated Press vote. Uh, they're the seventh team to be ranked number one, the seventh different team to hit, reach the number one spot. Uh, and Gonzaga falls behind them at number two. Uh, you look at further down the AP Top 25 this week, the Dayton Flyers, a mid-major out of the Atlantic 10, is, uh, they are number seven this week. Uh, they're 16-2 and two overall, and they have won seven games in a row. Uh, so that's going to be an exciting Atlantic 10 chase because you look at their standings, and you see Duquesne has won five in a row there in second place in the Atlantic 10. Uh, Rhode Island has won four in a row as well. So the Atlantic 10 is a conference to watch, and if Dayton keeps winning games in that tough conference, you could see them rising up even more. Uh, San Diego State is also in the top four nationally in the AP Top 25. They're undefeated. They're the last undefeated team in the nation. So Dayton, C- San Diego State, two names we don't hear from often, unless you're talking about Kawhi Leonard for San Diego State. Yeah. Uh, so really interesting stuff, Chris. I was wondering what your take was on this crazy year we've had. Uh, I, just, I just think it's crazy that a team from the Atlantic 10 is this high up in the AP poll. Usually you see these kinds of teams sitting at like 23, 24, and never at number seven, but this can just be simplified and how crazy the season's come. Uh, some great games have been happening so far, and this could be looked to be one of the craziest March Madnesses ever because Clemson looks like upset material going into the tournament, and I think they could surprise many people after they beat uh, North Carolina and, <clears throat> and the Blue Devils. So I think we could see... Uh, 
even Clemson creeping into the top 25, maybe sometime soon. But we see all this great basketball happening. We're definitely going to see plenty of new faces in the tournament, which might look to be a very good one. Yeah, and you, and you, you flip this over to the women's side uh, briefly, just because what stood out the most there, it, it's not been quite as many upsets on the women's side. It's been going a little bit more according to plan, but then you see that UConn has lost a game already this year. The Connecticut Huskies have already lost a game. Many years, you'll see them go unbeaten, and then maybe something happens in the Elite Eight in, of the, or the Final Four of March Madness where you say, okay, that's where they could be tripped up by Mississippi State or a Notre Dame or a South Carolina State on the women's side. Uh, those are all really strong programs on the women's side of things, but UConn already tripped up early this season, so it looks like both on men's and women's side, it's going to be a, a hectic year. I think this could be summed up to the fact that the freshman class this year wasn't very good, so uh, your Mike Krasinski's of the world can't get... Um, as well as who you've hoped. And you see guys like Anthony Edwards are going to places like Georgia. So he was one of the top prospects as well. And you see uh, Lamella Ball and James Wiseman, uh, they're going their own path. So you see a lot of these high-class recruits uh, going pro after high school for, for leagues that will allow it. And you could see the NBA do the same thing in just a couple years' time. Absolutely. And I know, uh, kind of switching gears from uh, the college hoops as we continue to get into the, the uh the headline, the top headlines of our episode, uh, you mentioned Patrick Kane at the outset. Uh, Patrick Kane hitting 1,000 points on his career. Uh, so just uh, kind of highlighting uh, Patrick Kane's journey to that milestone. Yeah, so he was the first first overall pick in 2007. He was one of those surefire prospects for hockey in a sport that was there was very few of them. Uh, he joins seven other active players with 1,000 points, and he's like the 94th overall. So he, he has 24 goals and 62 points this season, and Last year, he's like the ageless Drew Brees of hockey. Um, just like Ovechkin, you see that he had a career high in points last season. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Kane has an amazing legacy with the Blackhawks, always uh, winning championships and making them a title contender, uh, usually each year, even though they're going through a rebuilding phase right now. So uh, bravo to him and just a shout out from the hockey side. Absolutely, definitely deserving of a, of a lot of congratulations on 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 that mark, and we're sure, we're pretty sure that with this younger generation of hockey players coming up, you look at Connor McDavid uh, with the Oilers. There, I mean, there's going to be that next generation of studs to follow uh, what Patrick Kane has uh, established. Uh, turning over to something a little more unfortunate and uh, saddening from the West Coast. Uh, at the Santa Anita track uh, for horse racing, we've seen several horse deaths recently in the span of a short window of time, and uh, I would have Chris Phyllis in on that as well. Yeah, this past three days. Um... Three horses have died at the Santa Anita track. Two broke their ankles on uh, one of their turf events. Uh, Only 37 horses died at this track last year. So even though horses dying during during activity isn't a rare occurrence, having it three days in a row is quite shocking. um, And it's something to be looked at for horse racing in general. So that's just uh, another thing to say. Uh, Now we're gonna move on to our main topic of the WNBA. Uh, They have a new CBA, which has actually been given a lot of criticism recently um, from casual fans and uh, in-depth fans alike of the NBA and the WNBA. So I'll I'll hand it off to Dan for this one to get us started and rolling. Uh, Yeah, so the WNBA under uh, first ever commissioner, their first ever commissioner in the history of their league, uh, Kathy Engelbert, uh, under her leadership, they have uh, come to agreement, the Players Association Association, and the league have come to agreement on this new collective bargaining agreement. Uh, And this CBA had to be overhauled, and I'm really glad, personally, uh, to see this take place. 
So what uh, there have been a lot of big changes that occur with this new CBA, uh, but some of the top prongs of it are that the maximum salary for top players, although it's increased from just over $100,000 to $215,000, uh, there are increased bonuses and compensation uh, now allowed for marketing, and those kinds of incentives can mean that a player can now earn more than $500,000 in a season. So we're, we're, we're crossing the half a million marker for any given any given top player, the Elena Deladon, the Brittany Griner, the whoever it may be, uh, those top players can really cash in even more the way the WNBA, excuse me, the NBA superstars have done for so long. And other high-performing players around the league have a chance to earn between $200,000 and $300,000. And that's just, you know, kind of boosting up the salary and making it a little bit more competitive compared to the the NBA scale of things. Yeah, so one of the things that they're trying to do with this salary upgrade is to prevent these high-quality MVP-type players like Deladon uh, from going overseas during the offseason and possibly getting injured and missing the season. Uh, some of these very important players, if they get hurt, um, and a very already very small size of fans could be cut down due to their favorite player being hurt. So they're trying to become the best women's uh, basketball league internationally. internationally. Sure. So they're trying to build it up and make it that league and it's looking due to this compensation that you might have more players from overseas come to the WNBA and that would be the draw for sure you look at the effect that international players coming overseas to the United States has had on the NBA Luka Doncic uh, Kristaps Porzingis, Dirk Nowitzki, before Doncic even arrived in Dallas. The list goes before on. He was even born. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's how far those guys are apart. And uh, but anyway, yeah. I mean, if the WNBA can have be that kind of internationally competitive in terms of the salary that pl- is available to players and kind of the the stage that players can be on, we want this. And really, the United States should want this WNBA to be the premier women's league for basketball internationally. So a couple other highlights for the CBA, uh, this new CBA that was announced. I was kind of talking about uh, salaries earlier. The new average cash compensation across the league now will be nearly uh, $130,000. And that's a a vast improvement over the average salary in 2018, which is around $70,000, according to the Washington Post. So uh, really just much much improved finances, but also just a, a few more practical improvements as well. So you also see them helping out with uh, maternity and uh, family planning elements, and it, they feature a new annual child care stipend of $5,000 for the women, uh, and players on maternity leave will receive full salary. They weren't able to do that before, and family planning benefits off, up, are up to $60,000 for adoption, surrogacy, uh, fertility treatments, etc., uh, etc., et um, but one of the main criticisms of this is that the NBA is going to be hit with the bill for um, for this subsidizing the WNBA, and um, there can be a very easy. They're they're hoping to get sponsorships. Engelbert came from Deloitte, an accounting firm, uh, so she's trying to bring bring Deloitte to be a sponsor of the WNBA as well as AT and T and Nike. Uh, she, ticket sales in the WNBA is not profitable at all yet, so. Um, many criticisms come from the M- NBA subsidizing the WNBA and that they wouldn't hold their own as a league. Um, but I think the correct response is that even after all these payroll upgrades, it would still cost around $20 million just for payroll. Uh, so your Trevor Ariza's of the world are getting three years, $30 million. So you're basically paying a Trevor Ariza to um, build this sports league which could be something special. Back in the early 90s, they had a lot of flashy Jason Williams type players, and occasionally they do here here and there, but I think they should go back to that flashy type of basketball where they had their uh, superstars. So um, we, we see this time and time again where 
uh, new deals are coming in. We're going to see a new deal for the NBA and the NFL in 2021 and 2022, respectively. I These think. new collective bargaining agreements. Yeah, yeah. So, so we could see some crazy things happen in the future and um, we could also see an NFL lockout soon. Sure, yeah, looking down the road and just talking about collective bargaining agreements in general, how the NFL will need to renew or revamp or get, come to a new agreement in uh, 2021. Uh, but I think in the meantime, briefly bringing it back to WNBA, I don't see too much trouble with the NBA subsidizing this, just kind of no, getting the WNBA it. on its feet. Because I think this league could stand up on its own. It's just that these investments need to be made because the product on the court is there. And I think once there's a little more exposure, uh, you've seen ESPN get increasingly uh, more proactive in showcasing WNBA on its networks, on its family of networks, on the networks that everybody gets, you know, ESPN, or cable users get uh, ESPN, ESPN2. When I say everybody, I mean not the small, obscure, like ESPN Ocho <laughs> or whatever you want. The small ones, the big stuff, the, the real platforms that showcase the sport is it, yeah. so crucial for the WNBA. So, uh, but kind of switching gears from our top headline now to, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't recap the NFL Conference Championships that we had yeah. on Sunday. Uh, the big championship Sunday has come and gone. Uh, the, AFC championship, the AFC Championship started us off. The Kansas City Chiefs have ended their Super Bowl drought. They win the Lamar Hunt Trophy. They bring that trophy home to the Hunt family the ownership group for the Chiefs. Uh, they were simply too explosive for the Tennessee Titans. The Titans took an early lead. Uh, the yeah, Chiefs 17-7. I, I even texted you and said, look, the, the Chiefs are choking, and then they score, what, two quick touchdowns? And right. Before you can even... I, I'm swallowing... Uh, <laughs> you swallowing your tongue, words. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before you could even text back, or before we could even communicate anymore, the, t- the Chiefs have scored again. So yeah, that yeah. goes to show you, you blink and you'll miss it. Uh, so, I mean, the, uh, Mahomes threw for... Patrick Mahomes threw for 294 yards and three touchdowns. He also had a spectacular rushing touchdown right before the end of the first yeah. half that really gave the Chiefs all that momentum that they needed. Uh, and the Titans, props to them. I mean, they were counted out all postseason long. It reminds me of, the, of your Philadelphia Eagles, the mentality that they had, the underdog spirit that they had. Mm-hmm. So lots of credit to the Titans. Uh, they really became the underdog story that everyone really embraced and could, yeah. could get behind. Uh, they took out my Ravens along the way. So major credit to them, but... I, mean, I think the Chiefs, Andy Reid, that whole front office, uh, Brett Veach, former Delaware Blue Hen wide receiver, Brett Veach, the general manager of the Chiefs, they all deserve a lot of credit because this offense is explosive. The defense has been improved as well. Yeah, so uh, we have to applaud Andy Reid just for a minute. Uh, me as an Eagles fan, I always looked up to Andy Reid. He was the, I was born and he was the coach. And, you know, once I was going to my first decade of living, you know, he was still, <laughs> he's the, still coach. the coach, still there. He was still the coach. And, uh, he seemed a little burnt out, and we, we, they mutually agreed to part of ways. And he seems like he really found a niche in Kansas City, just like he did in Philadelphia. One of the all-time great coaches. He he built two uh, very struggling programs uh, into powerhouses um, with Alex Smith in Kansas City, and now Patrick Mahomes, and with Donovan McNabb. What he's done in the NFL has been truly something special. And a round of applause to him, even though his record in the conference championship is two and five now uh we can we can give Andy Reid um a round of applause for just getting to seven conference championships head coaches don't do that often he's 14 and 14 in the playoffs he he's a very experienced coach and I think coaching is something that's going to come down to the Super Bowl 
and we'll discuss the Super Bowl in depth in our next week's episode, or one of next week's episodes, we should say, our Super Bowl special. Uh, we've gotten a lot of interesting requests about that, uh, and we're hearing all of them. You know, we're we're very we're considering doing a live stream of our podcast, so it will be available on Anchor on every platform that you guys are using. Uh, but we'll, we're also strongly considering doing a live stream of our podcast, possibly taking live questions uh, via Instagram Live or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so so that's being sorted out. But we will have an hour long special of the Super Bowl uh, podcast preview podcast for you guys, uh, and that's kind of when we'll share most of our Super Bowl uh, predictions. But the other team playing the Super Bowl, other than Chiefs, those will be the San Francisco 49ers, uh, the NFC champions. Uh, they raced past the Packers. They completely blew them out of their building. Uh, they blew them out of Santa Clara. Uh, Raheem Mostert, the uh, 49ers running back, had 220 yards rushing to go with four touchdowns to completely just boat race uh, Green Bay. So the San Francisco 49ers proved to be the class of the NFC. And uh, they march into the big game with uh, with a bruising running game, a really good blocking wide receivers and tight ends led by George Kittle. Uh, Kittle is known for his pass catching abilities and he's spectacular in that regard. But also he's not afraid to th- throw a block either. And he's a big man. A lot of people would call him Rob Gronkowski 2.0. So what stands out to you about the 49ers other than those big headlines? So you, you see that time and time again building in the trenches. They have a great defensive line. They got pressure on Aaron Rodgers, even though he had... He tried to mount that comeback in the second half. It was to no avail, but you see that building in the trenches wins championships, good offensive line, good defensive line. Uh, you see an undrafted free agent run for 220 yards and props out to uh, Mozart, but um, it's really that offensive line that's getting him going. He averaged seven yards a carry. So it's something, even though he had a spectacular game, props to the offensive line and Kittle to get this get this going and get it off the ground um and Garoppolo they obviously game planned for Garoppolo to throw the ball so and obviously that failed miserably and Garoppolo just did what he had to do to uh take um take the 49ers to the promised land uh to down to Miami I think this year so yep yep so that should be a very interesting Super Bowl. I mean, two very good offensive teams and one explosive offense and against one very good defense. So I think this is something that we should be excited for. Uh, kudos to the 49ers. Nobody had them going to the Super Bowl this year. Well, I don't, oh, oh, this year I was going to, I thought you were going to say at the beginning of the playoffs and I was, yeah. I was going to stop you. But yeah, at the beginning of this year, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah, so they won four games the year before. They're like the third team to do that to win four games the season before and go to the Super Bowl. I'd say Jimmy Garoppolo being healthy this year yeah. <laughs> had a big difference. Yeah, yeah. so he he didn't tear. He tore his ACL last year, came back stronger than ever, and we see uh, Garoppolo, one of a, a Brady disciple, so should you say, uh, become another one of those quality starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, yeah, I, I'd echo those thoughts for you. I think Jimmy Garoppolo shouldn't be lost in this in this uh, kind of mix. Uh, they, the running game was featured on Sunday. Uh, all they needed was a running game, really. They grinded out the grinded out that clock and raced out to that lead before the Packers could even bat an eye. Uh, but I'd say uh, we talked about Andy Reid. How about Kyle Shanahan as well? Yeah. Uh, we saw a couple of few years ago uh, he was the offense coordinator for those Atlanta Falcons who are known for blowing the big 28-3 lead in Super Bowl 51. This is true. But we can't forget that that offense that year, Matt Ryan was an MVP candidate. He won the MVP. I, I didn't want to mis- misremember the MVP, but wins the MVP. Matt Ryan's offense, Kyle Shanahan's offense, uh, leads the league in points scored uh, per game. So really just 
the, the Kyle Shanahan, he showed what he can do on the off, as an offense coordinator in, in, that year with the Falcons. And now this year, you're seeing he's building both sides of the ball. He's overseeing the whole 49ers team, obviously. And you're looking at how strong they are on defense and how they complement that with their offense. So credit to Kyle Shanahan as well. And we mentioned that coaching matchup is going to be big. But we'll get into that even more in our Super Bowl special yeah. preview. Uh, and, and we're really looking forward to that a lot. But um, we're kind of keeping on the NFL track. Uh, we were going to get into some more coaching news because uh, coaching continues to be a hot topic and we're kind of taking a step back in the playoffs now that all the playoffs have wrapped up leading up to the Super Bowl. We were having a conversation off, off the air, so to speak, earlier. Which playoff head coach is most likely to have a firing in the next year? Which coach is most on the hot seat? Because a lot of these coaches are in good shape. Uh, there are a lot of untouchable coaches. Bill Belichick being one of them. He's not going anywhere. He'll, go, he'll leave New England when he says so. But some of these other coaches may be a little less clear. Yeah, so... The one that we pointed out to ourselves is Bill O'Brien. We both had the same agreement that, you know, he's been struggling the playoffs. Uh, they haven't went past the divisional round. They have a prime Deshaun Watson now, who's a very good quarterback, Pro Bowl level quarterback, if not all pro, in the future. And we see this time and time again with Bill O'Brien not not holding up to the standards that he's expected to. Um, and. I feel like he was on the hot seat last year and then he went to the playoffs this season and won a playoff game. So his seat's cooled down a bit, little bit, but if he has a down season next year, I wouldn't be surprised if they bring in one of these uh, offensive coordinators, Eric Bieniemy, for example, to uh, help with Watson and make him, because Bill O'Brien's a defensive-minded coach. And for sure. Yeah. Their defense isn't that great, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hasn't necessarily paid off. We saw the Texans earlier this week dismiss defensive coordinator Romeo Cornell uh, from the staff. So some staff changes being made, but not the head coach spot yet anyway. Yeah, so not yet, but that's someone we could see is... Uh, Eric Bieniemy with the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah. gone. So um, we could see some, some vast changes next season in the coaching ranks because there's a lot of coaches right now that with these meddling teams that are now like we got to win we got to improve on our season um and just going back to Kyle Shanahan he was the offensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns for one season okay so he was told um by ownership to start Johnny Manziel and he refused okay that's like slipped my mind but I appreciate you (laughs) reminding me of that reality because that's pretty that's some good foresight to to avoid starting Manziel for a while Yeah. yeah so he he was um so he was, uh, let, he resigned from that position at the end of the season, and he went on to coach the Atlanta Falcons, who had an explosive offense, and that's just another uh, Browns moment. Yeah, another browning add that it, to the yeah. Browns, Browning it as we'll call it. Yeah, just adding to the list of Browns futility. Uh, they did hire Kevin Stefanski, uh, former Vikings offense coordinator, here recently, so we should mention that. Uh, I, I really can't pass judgment on that just yet, other than I think Eric Bieniemy or Robert Sala. Uh, I know they expressed interest in Robert Sala, the 49ers defensive coordinator, yeah. uh, and just possibly because San Francisco beat Minnesota in the divisional round, they went with Stefanski because he became available when the Vikings lost. But So really, not to pass judgment on Kevin Stefanski, he, he may end up doing very well, but I think we continue to look at these coaches of color and wonder, what what more do they have to do in order to get it get a spot? Yeah. We've talked about that before, but just something to keep an eye on uh, yeah. as more coaching changes happen. Uh, another coaching change you and I thought might happen somewhat soon, um, perhaps not even this offseason or anytime in the next couple of years, but down the road, Adam Gase of the Jets, unless the New York Jets see considerable improvement, you see Adam Gase maybe being one of those guys who's in some trouble uh, for about his entire tenure. It seemed like he's had a disconnect with that front office. Uh, the front office pushed for trading for Le'Veon Bell or... Actually, no, it was just a free, oh, excuse me, a free agent signing, excuse me. It was a free agent signing uh, of Le'Veon Bell, the former Steelers back. 
and yet Adam Gase hasn't really embraced Le'Veon Bell or, or used him or utilized him nearly as much as anyone might expect trying to help out a young quarterback in Sam Darnold. We haven't seen that very much yet. So really a strange kind of environment and climate in New York with Adam Gase. Yeah, so Adam Gase is one of those coaches where you can look back and be like, all these players got good when he hightailed it out of Miami. Miami. And basically all these players got good once they got out of Miami. So Ryan Tannehill, we just saw with the Titans. Yep, Pro Bowl quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, Xavier Howard uh, being that, um, not Xavier Howard, what's his What's his face? <laughs> Finding no name. Well, there are other names. Devontae Minka Parker. Fitzpatrick. Minka Fitzpatrick. There you go. Minka but Devontae F- Parker at wide receiver. Minka Fitzpatrick in the secondary. The list goes on. Yeah, Minka Fitzpatrick, uh, defensive player of the year candidate, right for this from the Steelers. So we can look back and be like all these good players from Miami. But Adam Gase, you know, he he, he hates Le'Veon. Yeah, th- no, not a doubt in my mind that he does not like Le'Veon. <laughs> it, it sure seems that way, right? Yeah, so it seems like he has a disconnect with the front office and what he's trying to do. Um, I think you could see him be gone by the, by the beginning, of, um, by the end of next season, just due to the simple fact that it seems like the front office doesn't like him because um, the first thing that happened was he was hired first, and then they fired their general manager and then hired the new one. So. I think one of those things that we have to look at is another coach being being the Jets head coach and that hiring came with much criticism to begin with, so it's just one of those things. Yeah, I mean he, he Adam Gates has won some games in his career, okay? Um I mean to be fair, he he came to prominence initially in his career when he was the offensive coordinator for the Broncos. Uh I mean, and, and that offense really set the NFL record for points, if we remember, with yeah. Peyton Manning in the twilight of his career. So that's when he kind of first emerged as a, as a hot candidate and maybe someone who's going to be really get going a team like the Dolphins. But it hasn't, it never really panned out, panned out that way in Miami. And it certainly hasn't turned out that way yet with the Jets uh, on their end. Yeah, you can see a lot of these coaches only being good candidate, good coordinators. You see Wade Phillips having a Hall of Fame coordinator career, but his coaching career was so-so. He didn't really win too many playoff games, so... Even though he was a good head coach, he wasn't one or of those great head. A coaches. good coordinator, but not a but not well, as a great, great head coach. coordinator. Yeah, yeah. But and a decent coach, but nowhere near the level he was as a coordinator. Um, so you see, Wade Phillips, um, he was actually uh, dismissed from the Rams staff, which I think was a very big mistake and um, a very big mistake on the part of Sean McVay. And you see the cracks in the Rams that. You could see for you could foresee for a while now with their salary cap struggles and they're trading away first round picks. I don't think they have a first round pick until twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four. They so. sh- they sure have invested a lot in winning right now and winning as soon as possible. When you look at their roster the way it's composed, you don't know how much more Todd Gurley you're going to get, it, or or any Todd Gurley <laughs> or how much more the Todd Gurley that we knew that we used to know, the Todd yeah. Gurley of old, the one who would be running over people and really just that electric number one fantasy player type of running back. Yeah. Uh, and in their defense too, they've invested so much in acquiring. people pieces for that defense that they're lacking draft picks like you mentioned so these stat changes these shakeups are, are what might be necessary to propel them back in the NFC playoff picture you see they missed the playoffs this year narrowly um, but they need to put themselves right back in the mix because they have the roster to win now Jerry Goff took them to the Super Bowl last year so he can win games in the postseason we're, we're in no place to question that necessarily but it's just a matter of what's going to be the right combination of staff to to get that job done yeah, so I think that's all we have to say for this week. It's a little bit of a shorter episode at 26 minutes, but we do appreciate all of you, all of the time that you spend with us and make the time that you make with us. We really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you, and hopefully you guys enjoyed episode five.